Guess who's back? We're back again after some vacations and other shenanigans that kept us away. And now we're back for episode 39 of Enterprise Linux Security. How you doing, Zhao? Better now. And as always, it's a pleasure. It's great to, have, to be back from vacation and to get back into it again. Um, and yeah, lots of the interesting news that happened while we were away on vacation that we're going to cover. Uh, lots of interesting security stories and some, I don't know, some they did what moments again. But yeah, we'll I get into that. <laughs> And I'm just coming back from Niagara Falls myself. So there, there I, I definitely want to address the fact that I know there's some other security shenanigans that we should talk about, but we're going to hold that because I'm still kind of getting up to speed. You know how when you come back from vacation, you have like 2,000 emails and you, your news feeds are, you know, you got like hundreds of articles to go through. Um, we'll be caught up very soon, but Zhao already had presented a couple of topics that we're going to look into. So we'll just go through the news. Yeah. Okay, so uh, earlier this month, on the 10th of August, um, it was reported that uh, an automotive uh, supplier was hit by three different strains of ransomware at the same time. And Ouch. While, while it's not entirely new, this has happened in the past, um, there are some interesting details to this story. Mm -hmm. um, Okay, so first of all, let's get this out of the way. The affected systems were running Windows, so we can all feel pretty smug about running Linux ourselves. Regardless of that, the, the rest of the stuff could have happened just exactly the same as if it was on Linux. Um, yeah, and one, one so, aside I'll make on that, sorry to cut you off though, is- No, um, no problem. One, one of the things too though is um, where that also worries me is you have in a situation where you have like a Windows server, like a file server um, that, is infected and if you have linux clients that are pulling files from said server and they're you know sharing it back and forth it, it there are there's sometimes a situation where linux users don't even know a file is infected because obviously if they try to open it they can't but if they're just like copying files around uh, it copies it's fine but you know that could be a, also a pretty um egregious situation too if you have like a like a samba server running windows for example that could be Worse Linux clients or not? Yeah, and mixed environments are pretty common, so yeah, it's not. Then again, yeah. let's move on. Uh, so okay, we have this automotive supplier. Um, they had some remote desktop um, access open to the internet, as you often do, even if you shouldn't. But some systems were accessible from the internet. To top it off. One of the systems that was accessible was, an, was a management station. So basically something that was used to manage other systems. Ouch. Probably the sysadmin went on vacation and found out that he needed to access that to make sure that everything was running smoothly and he wasn't the only one that noticed that being available. Is that still called, what, what was it, like System Center Configuration Manager? That, I don't know if that's Yes, that's, called. if you're going for the Microsoft one, yes, that's one of those. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I thought SCCM. you were referring to. Um, I don't think they mentioned the actual name of it on the on the article, but it was a management software that was running there, and uh, the whole system was available through a remote desktop. Um, this isn't even a pro tip. You should never have remote desktop open to the internet, but just that's just a quick rule of them. VNC either, now that we're mentioning remote access tool, you shouldn't have VNC open to the internet either. Um, right. There, were, there was an unrelated story 
about how Shodan is now indexing VNC servers and somebody looked at that and there were thousands of them open. That was just an aside. Okay, so we have the, the company, they have this open remote desktop part and they got attacked. The attackers managed to get into the system. The details of how they got access was probably through some vulnerability in remote desktop. They managed to guess the password or something else. They got in and they deployed their tools of the trade. So they deployed the ransomware. They started moving laterally in the network and they started encrypting files. This is just standard operating procedure for someone doing a ransomware attack. Right. Your software will run through the data, we'll start encrypting that, and we'll add your extension to the to the file to make sure to let you know that the file was encrypted so that you can move to the next one and not waste time on the segment. From the logs, it was possible to notice that two hours after the initial breach, a second one happened. Again through remote desktop and again deployed the ransomware, and it was a different ransomware, and it started encrypting files again. When it found the files encrypted by the first one, what does that ransomware do? Oh, a new file, it doesn't have my extension, let me encrypt it. So now you have files that are doubly encrypted. The first one was still running. So the first one was still indexing files and looking at files to, to encrypt. He found the files that he encrypted initially, now having a different extension, so he didn't realize that they were already hashed by itself, so he did it again. So you have files being encrypted and re-encrypted and encrypted again, always adding new extensions. So you had like these huge trains of extensions. Wow, uh, it's like it a kind of makes you match almost. <laughs> yeah, it kind of makes you <laughs> makes you yearn for those years where DOS just had eight plus three characters, eight for the file name and three for the extension, and that's it. We're spoiled for that right now. Or what, what was it like a like a tilde one or tilde two or some character? That yeah, was, was yeah. When you try to use more than that, he would depend that to the the file name. But now you just add whatever you want. Um, so yeah, you have this interesting situation where your files are doubly and triply encrypted, um, and to get them back, you have to unencrypt them in order. So you need to get the unencryption tool from the first one, then the second one, and then the first one again, and a huge mess. Basically, you're screwed at this point. There, there's such a, a low chance of getting your files back. It's a non-zero um, possibility, but it is yeah. close to zero, pretty much. I mean, at least it's not what 1% at most of an opportunity. It's not going to happen. And the guys at this company, they, they realize that. So what do they do? They realize they had been breached. They went for their backups. They started restoring things. I'm condensing here the story. This is over a two-week period. So after two weeks, they are restoring from backup, trying to get everything back in order again. So they already lost two weeks. They are trying to restore stuff. What happens after two weeks? Another infection happens, same attack vector. They didn't find it initially. They didn't close the, the port. So a new attacker entered the arena. They found, oh, let, what's here? New files that I have never encrypted. Let me start encrypting them again. And yeah, so this, this almost is feels a big... like a capture the flag game, but in real life. And the players <laughs> that are actually doing the thing are actually real threat actors, it's not a simulation. It's like they all find the same, it's almost like a honeypot, but it's not. It's actually a system from the sounds of it. And um, I, I'm, a, I'm gonna make an assumption here. I don't like assumptions, but I'll make one. I, I'm assuming the first thing these things go after on Windows system is probably like uh, shadow copies. 
because I'm sure oh, yeah. that you can get that back. And oh, I never oh, like absolutely. having shadow copies on the same system, you know. Absolutely. They, they will immediately disable shadow copies. They will try to get credentials from the, the system authority service. They will try to do all types of nasty things like uh, enumerating all the shares they can see on the network, seeing where they have write access and move there, try to run processes on different systems that they see, all kinds of interesting stuff to, just to move laterally there and elevate their privileges. But uh, yeah, the, the situation where the company is was, is not very nice. Um, I haven't mentioned this yet, but we're looking at the report that the Sophos group um, generated, the Sophos, the, the antivirus company, so they did the report on this. They were called in to, to look at, the, at basically the situation and try to help them out. Um, and yeah, what they found was not very pretty. So they mentioned this, the, the Sophos report does mention this. Seeing double attacks is not uncommon. Seeing triple, they haven't seen it themselves. I haven't seen this in the wild yet. I've seen single ransomware infections multiple times, obviously. Um, right. I haven't seen double or triple even. But yeah, this is a situation where you're basically screwed. You, you, even if you decide to pay, even if you go through the motions and we're not advising you to pay, but even if you do decide to do it, in a situation like this, it's going to be very hard to get your data back. It really would be. It's kind of interesting to me, the difference in mindset um, in, in multiple ways, because I have to remind myself that there's no honor system among threat actors. Like there's no situation in which, oh, someone else already got to this one. I'm going to let them have it and go move on. And no, there's an open door. I'm going to walk through it and, you know, an open door is an open door. It's kind of like for those of you that are gamers and you're playing a fighting game against somebody and they you know, complain that you're using the same move over and over again. And you're like, well, it's a fair move. It's you learn how to block. And, you know, I know it's a dumb analogy, but here it's like um, pretty much the same thing. It's like they keep on hitting them when they're down over and over again because they can. It is what it is. But, yeah, there's no honor system among threat actors. It's like, yeah, if there's an open door, um, they're going to go through it. And the other mindset is like my, the first thing I think about when I have any even suspicion that something weird is going on, I, I'm disconnecting that network cable. That's the first thing I'm doing. I'm pulling that network cable or I'm just going to power it off or something and just, you know, not even let it see another CPU cycle if I can. But um, apparently they must have just left it running. Yeah. Um, I'm sure they were operating under the assumption that they had found the initial attack vector and that they had closed it, but obviously not. Um, right. This is the type of situation where getting outside help early really is a good uh, is a good idea. If you're not sure if your team is up to the task of actually finding this, and this is this is making no judgment on your IT team. This is very difficult right. to to ascertain properly. It's very hard to come to a, a network and identify. Okay, this is how they got in. This is what we need to do to close it. They only reached these systems and they didn't touch the other ones. This isn't something that happens overnight even. This is something that will take you days to actually do properly. And like you say, disconnecting everything would be the first step and then going over each system one by one. Isolated would be the proper way to do this. Um, but again, if you're unsure, if you're going to be able to pull this off, and this is a really hard requirement, um, you should get outside help and you should get it early in the process. Probably as soon as you realize you have the infection, someone up the food chain should have said, okay, let's bring in security specialists, 
let's bring in somebody that has dealt with these kinds of things before so that they can help us at least get some idea of the scope of the, the infection, the scope of the attack, and help us close everything. I and agree. that closing everything is probably step number two, even before the outside help arrives. Is Okay, lock everything down. Stop all the services, stop all the systems that don't need to be up for vital stuff. Just turn them off. Dis like you said, disconnect them from the network, turn them off, isolate them, make sure that you can look at them at your own pace and make sure you have the, the proper team in place to actually look at them. Um, again, this isn't easy to do. This isn't the expertise that you gain from one day to the next. It takes years to, to be able to properly do something like this. Um, every infection is different from the other one, the next one, Actually, this isn't true in this one. All three of them were the same. But anyway, um, each security incident is probably going to be different from the next one. You see some will have credentials being stolen, others will just be a vulnerability that isn't patched, all of that. And getting help in identifying which is which in each situation is probably the best way. I agree with everything. Um, and to even add more to, to the point you brought up, um, yeah, we're not we're not attacking anyone because um, I don't care if you are a super amazing security person with a bunch of years experience and every certification you can get, um, or if you're like the you know CTO and you have like 100% faith in the people that you've hired, which is great, but another set of eyes. I don't care how much you know. Like I've had people correct me all the time. I have a fraction of the knowledge that I have. And I love it because I learned something from everybody, regardless of their um, level. And if you have something like this happen, um, I feel like the more somebody is involved with the systems, the more intimately they're in the systems and engineering things, um, there's some muscle memory there. The, the Sophos team actually has some recommendations at the, the end of the report. Um, and it's interesting, but it's all points that we've touched before in the podcast. Patch and investigate. Uh, the idea there being that you need to patch all your systems. Even after the breach, you need to go through all of the systems and patch them. This is to help you close the initial breach. This is to help you close other breaches that the, the attacker might have discovered while they were inside your network. Because they're not just going to sit there and deploy ransomware. They're going to be looking at your other assets in the network. They're going to be trying to identify other possible movements that they can take inside the network. So they will be looking for vulnerabilities. We always advise you to do your patching, keep your applications up to date, keep your firmwares up to date, all of that. And that really is the basic stuff that you need to be doing. Yep. Before the incident, obviously, that's ideal. But after the incident as well. And then investigate. So what we just talked about, turning off your systems, disconnecting them from the network, getting a new pair of eyes like you were mentioning, because being too close to the problem makes you blind. It's seeing the forest for the trees or whatever the expression is. Um, you're missing perspective. You're missing the, the necessary distance from the problem. You might have dealt with those systems for years. You might have configured them yourself. So you're not even going to look at the settings. You're going to assume that they are as you left them before. So that will lead to mistakes. It really will. Yeah. And it's another thing too is this is one of the reasons why we try to make the mindset happen or try to get rid of the mindset that some people have where they look at a list of vulnerabilities 
oh, I don't need to worry about that one because that one's not remotely exploitable. So we're, we're okay. I'm just not going to worry about that one. And they move on. Um, obviously, you should prioritize remote access vulnerabilities first, but don't ignore completely the ones that can't be remotely exploitable because if somebody, let's just say hypothetically, gets into your system with a limited non-administrator account, they have access to nothing at all whatsoever. They're in the system, but they just can't move. They're stuck. All it takes is that one vulnerability that even non-remotely exploitable, they're in your system now. They could do vulnerability chaining to use a vulnerability that would otherwise not really be all that severe. It might even be like the lowest security level possible, but it's enough to get them elevated one level higher. They use another um, vulnerability and they keep doing that till they have full root access. Then, like you said, it's about lateral movement. They want to see what you have what's turned on, what's at every IP, what, what's at, you know, behind each port. That's literally what they do. And that one vulnerability you've ignored could have been the one thing that would have made it harder for them to get more movement. Yeah. Another thing that these guys mentioned, uh, the people from Sophos, is to lock down accessible services. That's what I mentioned at the start. You shouldn't have your remote desktop, your VNC access. It shouldn't be internet accessible. Um, you should need to have the VPN inside, or you should have some form of secure tunnel that you use to have access to that. Um, heck, just use SSH port forwarding and be done with it. I almost literally came close, and I won't say the name of the company, but just to protect the innocent. Well, innocent. Hmm. Um, I almost literally quit a company because I was in charge of the systems for said company, and they had a um, accounting server of all things remotely available publicly via remote desktop. And I first thing I'm like, this needs to. We need. We can't have this. This is not going to work. We can't have any server being publicly available like this, especially something that has all of our payroll and everything on there, not good. Um, and the owner of the company, not very technical, uh, mandated that it cannot be changed under any circumstances. There can't be any um, even consideration of making a change. And then for months, it was trying to get them to, I thought for sure they'd be on the news, but thankfully that didn't happen. Um, but that, those are the kinds of things that we worry about, especially if we're the ones trying to tell people to make the right decision, but they don't want to. And publicly available servers, this is exactly why we hate it. Yeah. That mindset is why casinos make money. People go there hoping that luck will save them. Um, yep. <laughs> but yeah. Moving on. So another advice that they do is practice segmentation and zero trust. This is about uh, stopping the lateral movement. So if you have all of your servers segregated, if server A does not have a good reason to talk to server B, it should be in a different VLAN. It shouldn't be accessible. Yeah. They don't need to see each other in the network. They don't need to be able to communicate in the network if they don't really have to. Um, so sure. even before even before moving to other zero trust policies, this is just basic stuff. Segregate your servers by role or by actual necessity. There are lots of VLANs you can use. They're internal to your network. Don't be afraid to use all the identifiers. If you have to just create lots of VLANs, um, nobody's going to complain to you. You're going to be the one managing it. So, yeah. Well, if they if do they, complain to you, it just means like, well, either they're uh, trying to access something that they shouldn't yeah. be able to do anyway. Because like, why are you accessing that? Yeah, it's not part of your job. Well, I've always been doing this. What? Um, it really gives you a lot of information yeah. about that kind of thing. 
But you know, that actually gives you good information because that actually gives you a visibility into processes that are not properly documented. If someone is using a server and no one knows why he's doing that, but he has a reason to do it, it might just be business related. He might actually have that necessity. It's just that nobody realized that, nobody written that, has written down that information in anywhere that's accessible. And that's good information to have. That's a good way to update your, I don't know, your tutorials, your documentation all the stuff that's business related, it's good when you get that type of feedback, actually. At least I view it as good. Another tip is getting a baseline of all of your servers when there's no issue, because what I've noticed is that some of these malwares will limit their processes to not exert the CPU and and try to fly underneath the uh, monitoring utilities when they start to monitor. So, you know, if you're... I don't know, maybe you have a low a server that's 40% utilized all the time. It's not really all that busy, but it's like 49% now. How did it get to 49%? Why won't it go to 50? Why is it always trying to stay under 50? Though It may not seem like a problem because your CPU isn't being pegged, but okay, it's at 49. Something's really trying hard not to go to 50 because a lot of the monitoring, I don't think 50 yeah. is really a lower metric often, but you get what I mean. They're trying mm-hmm. to stay under lower end of the metric on the reporting end of things. And if you have a baseline, okay, something's a little weird over here. Maybe I should go ahead and take a look at that. Um, that's the reason why we tell people get a baseline of your servers. It's very important when it's not having a problem. You know, actually performance remembers me of something I've seen in the field a few years back. I was actually looking at the system that had been infected with ransomware and we were looking at the logs and we established that the ransomware executable started running and then run for about six minutes. And then after six minutes, we saw that close to 500 gigabytes of data had been encrypted. Now, this raises raised a lot of concerns at the time. Performance-wise, it was impossible to encrypt that amount of data with that hardware in six minutes. It just was impossible. The storage was not fast enough to, to do that. The CPU was not even nearly remotely <laughs> capable of doing that encryption within that time frame. So what that led me to was that that specific ransomware was only encrypting the first block of each file. Oh. The first kilobyte or four kilobytes or whatever of, of each file and depending its um, its extension to the file and claiming that Wouldn't it was that be encrypted. the metadata part? I'm not depending on the file system. That depends on the file type. That depends on the actual content of the file. But that also helped us recover some of the files where that didn't matter. So we managed to get some data back without the, any, any encryption tool simply because not the whole file was encrypted. And we got we reached that conclusion because of the time that the, the encryption utility ran. We had logs of start and stop of executables and it only ran for six minutes. It was impossible for, for that amount of data to be encrypted in that amount of time. So mm. yeah. Um, looking at performance metrics sometimes will give you good clues when you're dealing with this type of things. And sometimes it won't. I mean, there's there's also... And sometimes it won't. And sometimes yeah. it won't. Yeah, but doing incident right. analysis, that's one of the things that you should be looking for. And new problems. you might get lucky. I mean, of course. There, there's so many different things. But apparently yeah. when we have a story like this, they got in once. They got in, you know, another one happened. There's this tug of war back and forth. And, and if yeah. I'm not mistaken, weren't there, weren't there like five by the end of this? 
five extensions. So the first one encrypted, the second one re-encrypted again to extensions, then the first one, then the second, and then the third one. So you've got five extensions on a single file. Yeah. Um, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> no, you really cannot. I mean, <laughs> at some point that's going to be false because we keep having these these stories every other every other week. So somebody is making this stuff up. It can't be happening in real life. Well, it's it's like we're dealing <laughs> with creativity. You know, I, I'm not saying that being a threat actor is a good thing, but I I will be honest and say there's a lot of clever threat actors, and yeah. um, I'm sure other threat actors are, are like, wow, I never thought of that. Damn, whoa, yeah. that's a good one. Um, not you know obviously not good but you get my point it's just Absolutely. that sometimes they think of a creative way but then also there's creative ways that we've talked about that the good guys have found them so there it's yeah back and forth is actually as much as i wish we didn't have a need for this podcast i also have a lot of fun with this podcast because i mean if these things must exist and security vulnerabilities must be a thing well we'll talk about it yeah the last of the recommendations that the Sophos team does and that I would like to point out is they stress the point of inventorying your assets and your accounts. If you have a proper inventory of all the systems that are connected to your network, who's responsible for what, who's mm -hmm. the person that you need to go to when something happens in that server, which accounts are created on each system, it then makes it very easy when something like this happens to run that again and compare it. So I see that server A used to have four accounts that had privileges and now it has five. The fifth one is something that I need to investigate. I need to look at that account and see when it was created, what new privileges does it have, what did it do in the time that it had been created, if it was created around the same time of the infection, then that's a very good indicator that it was used for that. Um, and again, it's more things that you need to look at. Uh, but having that inventory, because the opposite, not having an inventory at all, will leave you completely hopeless in a situation like this. There's nothing you can do because you don't know what right. you need to look at. How can you be sure that all your systems are secure again? You don't even know what systems are in your network. Yeah, and then somebody can plug in a rogue device or, or something like that, because if you're not noticing, there could be that mysterious Raspberry Pi in the closet that... You know, that hypothetical thing that we're going to totally have an article within a year about that exact thing. But, you know, it's hypothetical, but it's a real possibility if you're not taking inventory. Or that new virtual machine that's in the middle of a hundred others and you didn't notice that was created at the time. Or that new container that somehow isn't connected to anything except your high profile servers. Yeah, those are the types of things that you need to be able to identify and spot immediately as soon as they appear. And if your early warning systems, if your Nagios didn't report it, if your <laughs> if your Rapid Seven didn't fire, if none of those alerted for it, at least just run the check again and see what else is different from what it was before. So, yeah, I can see a future advice. where everybody disables the DHCP server. <laughs> Not that that would help much because static IPs are easy to create, but at the same time, it's super easy when your DHCP server happily gives out an IP address to any rogue thing that's plugged in at, at any time. That's not good either. So there's all kinds of weird... You know, not having DHCP log requests was one of the things that the Sophos group identified as being harmful for their analysis. Oh, yeah. Because it wasn't logging. So they had DHCP running, but it wasn't generating any logs. How do you yeah. even support a network without those logs on the DCP server? Because if anyone's having connectivity trouble, which it 
was one of those calls every sysadmin gets. That never oh. happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I've experienced some things, though, but I get your point. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, that's basically the, the story around this. Again, it's another interesting thing that can go wrong and will go wrong, leaving that remote desktop part is just an invitation. That point that you were making before about this looking like a capture the flag, I know this sucked for the company that suffered this, but how interesting would it be if they had found this and actually had created the capture the flag event around it? Okay, check the server, see if you can get in. And then, yeah. That's one way to get free security advice. Oh, right. it really just, just make sure you purge all actual private information, yeah. replace it with junk data or something, but keep like the structure. Well, you kind of want to make it a little bit different, but same enough to where you get some, oh yeah, they got in here, they got in there, they got in there. You'll find out yeah. really quickly because there's no such thing as perfect security. I don't care how good you are. Some There's always somebody better, always somebody that's going to think of something that you didn't. And um, the more of those you get, ahead of time, the harder it is for others to do the same thing. And yeah, I mean, that, that'll that be an interesting thing, you know, because people pay a lot of money for penetration testing. Yeah. But this, oh, we'll get it for free if we just have this public <laughs> flag and we'll just use the same image minus, you know, make sure no, there's no data in there. We'll just use the same server image and just, you know, put it on a completely different network, public internet, just give it a couple of weeks or probably a couple of minutes. And the next thing you know, oh, we, yeah, it got completely owned. So, yeah, that would be yeah. one way. Don't do this, anyone. Okay, please. Don't listen to me. I'm okay. <laughs> just before moving yeah. on from this story, I'd just like to credit Linda Smith, Rajat Wasan, and Sayed Zaidi, sorry for the pronunciation, which are the original authors for this, for this piece. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you for the report. It was a very interesting read. Yep. And yeah, let's move on to the next one. Yep. Because if there was one thing that wasn't missing this summer was security stories. So, okay, let's move on to Cisco. Um, we talked about the Talos group um, just an episode or two back when they were talking about how they uncovered some ransomware domains. Mm -hmm. um, and they shared some insights about uh, a breach that happened at Cisco itself. Also on the 10th of August, they released this. And apparently they identified an attack that happened on their systems. So this one happened because one of their employees was using Chrome and was sharing the, the data between browsers. So he had the Google account, it set the, the browser to keep the, the credentials stored in, and the it was sharing Chrome it with others. Or what are they called? Well, Chrome Pro. I believe it has to be a Google account. Uh, it's yeah, it's a like Chrome a, profile, but it has to be the, a Google account. Yeah, the, the built-in sync functionality. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it was syncing their credentials to other to other devices. So they got into his Google account, and they were able to sync the credentials to their browser, the browser under their control, and they got their credentials for the Cisco systems through that way. Um, there are some very interesting ways that the, the attackers operated here. Um, after gaining access, the, the accounts for the systems that they were interested in had multi-factor authentication in place. So they had to find a way to trick the user to actually accept the multi-factor authentication oh. uh, requests on their phone when they were trying to log in. And one of the ways that they did it 
they used several techniques and I'm going to go over the others, but the one of the ways that they did it was just sending so many notifications that the user to stop it would either by mistake or intentionally just press yes to make it stop because it was receiving so many notification attempts. So they were using um, multi-factor fatigue, multi-factor authentication fatigue, where the user is just so tired of seeing those messages that he just wants it to go away and they'll just press accept. And this actually happened and it succeeded and it got them access to some systems. Other ways that they got the, the multi-factor authentication accepted was by impersonating some support companies that um, the user actually knew about. Mm. It didn't have to be Cisco related, so they could say, oh, we're from your car manufacturer, so-and-so, and we're calling about uh, something and we need your access to this system or whatever. And they would trick him that way to accept the multi-factor authentication. This wasn't a, a quick operation. This went on for days until they actually got all the access that they want. When they got in, they actually deployed persistence tools so that they can continue to access the systems without requiring all those multi-factor, jumping through all those hoops to get the multi-factor authentication. But the initial attack was very, was a very intense attack on that user. Um, again, people are probably the weakest link here in the chain. You can have all the security in place that you want. You can have all the multi-factor authentication you want. If the user isn't aware of these risks, he will fall for it. Wow, I almost wonder if we have to put some kind of puzzle on these, uh, you know, push notifications to allow people to access. It. Someone's gonna have to really solve, and it's a local thing before it even gives them the prompt to let somebody in. So they have to, oh, I can't just that finger. Or, I mean, I can't just muscle memory my way through it. Oh, I have to actually read it. I'm sure that they'll find a way around that too. Because you're right, there is a fatigue. I mean, it, it as much as I wish there wasn't, it is the case that it does indeed happen. I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast live, but I know I've mentioned this to you before. Um, on Gmail, there was this on Gmail Labs, which is the experimental features that you could enable. Um, mm -hmm. During the night, if you wanted to send an email, you would have to solve uh, some mathematical puzzle or something. Um, right. That was to prevent you from sending drunk emails to your boss or something like that. Uh, they actually implemented that, and that was a feature that you could enable on your account. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Moving on. The the affected systems that they got access to again was were Windows, not Linux. So again, we can feel happy about that, but that's poor. That's not very helpful. Um, the main thing here is that they managed to get access to to Cisco's internal network, and this ties into a different story around Cisco that happened a couple of months back. I don't know the exact date, um, where it was discovered that Cisco had some hard-coded credentials in some of their devices. That was probably left as an oversight from engineering while they were developing the devices. Whatever, it doesn't really matter. There was this information that there were hard-coded credentials. An attacker that has access to your internal network will probably have access to lots of information. Notice that the attackers currently are getting a bit smarter on what they are doing. They're not just trying to wreck your data and encrypt everything. They are trying to steal information as well. We saw that with Lapses and Microsoft and NVIDIA, mm -hmm. where they stole huge amounts of data and moved it and actually extorted money to prevent the, the public disclosure. But the thing is, imagine if there are other hard-coded credentials on Cisco devices and these guys managed to find the file where that was 
written down. Who knows what else this guy saw? So if there were these types of accounts, now they have that information. They're probably not going to sell that. They're going to use them use it themselves. And that's a new attack vector that nobody else is aware of. Now, they don't mention this on the Cisco's document. This is just hypothetical. This is There is no proof that this happened as I'm describing it. But this is a scenario that isn't as far-fetched as it might sound originally. Because it comes from some logical conclusions here. This has already happened in the past, the hard-coded credentials, and people were looking at data that they shouldn't. So it might have happened, even if it didn't happen in this situation, it might happen in the future. What's going to be more damning to a company? Having your files encrypted and inaccessible, or having your C-level um, meetings publicly disclosed, the ones recorded in Zoom? Because many companies will prefer to have their data encrypted, their internal communications disclosed. I'm guessing from the big ones, probably all of them would prefer it that way. So information stealing is a very huge risk currently. And it's only getting more important as cryptocurrencies devalue because the financial incentive for ransomware is disappearing. So yeah. stealing data is becoming more lucrative. Wow. Yeah, we have to innovate our security because the threat actors are innovating their practice too. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this isn't even a technological thing. This is driven purely by a financial motivation. Um, there is no incentive to do ransomware. Of course, the ransomware will always keep existing. This You never put the genie back in the bottle. So. Uh, as ransomware was invented, somebody 10 years from now, 20 years from now, will still be trying to deploy ransomware somewhere else. But as it becomes less lucrative, people will look for other avenues for profit. And right now, stealing information, exfiltrating it, is getting more lucrative than ransomware itself. You can tell me, okay, sure, but people have been stealing information for years now. Yes, they have, but now they're getting a bigger payback from it. Right. The, that's why it's becoming more relevant. And this Cisco story, while the, the report that they do, and they're pretty comprehensive, the, the Talos, Talos group people, they do know how to put these reports together. They have information about all the steps of the attack, the IPs that were used in the attack, the tools that were used, and all of that. This is a pretty comprehensive article. But there is more information beyond what they are getting here in the report. And we don't know because they don't tell us, obviously. This is internal information from Cisco. Right. Nor should we have to know, but this might become relevant a few months down the line, a few years down the line, when somebody discovers new hard-coded credentials. That, oh, and that was stolen two years back by that threat actor that we didn't know about. Um, when we looked at the report from that tool from the Chinese um, persistent threat group, that used an, an encryption key that had been divulged by the by the leaks a few years back that people didn't know what they were. This is this can lead to the same situation. A few years down the line, you might see information related to this attack that are that is not obvious at this point. Um, yeah, this just makes it more interesting if you're someone that likes security stories and that in, is into cybersecurity. But it also might make your networks more insecure and. Looking at Cisco, 
Yeah, um, there was this saying that nobody gets hired by buying Cisco. Um, yes, that's true. Let's not see for how long. Right. Yeah. Oh boy. Never stops getting interesting. That's for darn sure. Yeah. the The rest of the bridge. This is a pretty standard. The Windows machines. They they show you what the commands were were executed, what registry keys were accessed, and all that. We're not going to get into the details. This is Linux security, not Windows security. Yeah. It just happens to be related to Windows machines, but the meat of the story isn't even that, at least in my view. Um, right. So yeah, we'll have the link for the whole report for you to read if you so desire. But um, yeah, these were the takeaways that I wanted to, to highlight. And these are the real things that exist in our ecosystem that we really do have to Pay attention to even our friends that use Windows are gonna they're gonna run into problems. Hopefully we don't, but you know, there's always that other episode that who knows might be coming down that could be that. But yeah, we've definitely got the network router yeah. doesn't care if you're running Windows or Linux, it just routes packets, at least until yeah. somebody is there running commands. Pretty much it, exactly that. It's all TCP IP at the end of the day. So. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. Nope. So you had another story that you wanted to go through? Um, yeah, so I wanted to, I, I meant to bring this up at the beginning, but I just wanted to give this a quick mention. Um, actually forgot, thank you. Um, I think almost everybody knows about this, that this impacts, but there's definitely going to be a few that aren't aware of this because let's be honest, we don't, a, a lot of us, we don't do a good job checking our email. I'm not trying to call you out on this, anybody, but um, Plex sent out an email and Plex is very common, especially with people that manage servers, because at home it's like, hey, look, I'm going to spin up a, a Plex server. We could watch our movies on there. Uh, there. There was a breach. My understanding when I read the story, which was yesterday, um, that there wasn't any like credit card details no. stolen because they mentioned that they don't even process they credit have cards it. on their end yeah. anyway, which um, is pretty much how I like to do it. I don't want anyone's credit card information at all because I the people can't steal what I don't have. Um, so good, good on them for that. But uh, they are requiring a password reset. So if you do use Plex, it's going to ask you to reset your password. You should absolutely do that. Um, you don't have a choice anyway. But I just want to make people aware that that did happen. Um, if you weren't already aware of that, so if you are a Plex user, you know, don't wait. Just change your password. You're going to have to anyway. So you may as well just get it done. And uh, yeah, so now you know if you didn't already. Okay, and we just talked about how unrelated accounts can compromise your your enterprise credentials. So yeah, um, that's well, a thing. Yeah, it um, has a direct link to a server in your network, even the remote server. It's running. It's, it's a it's an in. It really is an in. Yeah, um, and it's interesting that Plex sent out this message because I've been a Plex user for many years now and. It's not even the second or third time I've got a warning about a breach or credentials that have to be changed on their accounts. Um, yeah, I like the service. I like what the, what Plex does and the way it does it. But security, they're good about uh, divulging the information that the breaches happened, but uh, they can just keep happening. I'm, I am super glad that they divulge it well, because I think that's probably one of the things that a lot of companies don't do well, even worse than security. Actually, it's like, oh, yeah, well, they don't need to know that. Yes, they do. They need to know. And it's legally you need to tell them, too. <laughs> but um, yeah, now it's a legal requirement. Yeah. It is. So, yeah, yeah but I feel like that does 
kind of add trust. Now, obviously, since it's not the first time, okay, if it is the first time a company's dealt with this and they disclose, you know, quickly and let people know about this and they're responsible, that does actually increase my trust in the company. Obviously, if they keep complaining or keep having issues, then that's another problem. So hopefully this is not going to happen again, but it, you know, it probably will. Yeah, and it's a pity. It's a great service. Yeah, it really. This is. is this is free promotion for them, but it's a great service that they provide. They're not a sponsor, but we do like what they have provide. So yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I, I think that was pretty much everything, unless there was anything else on your side. No, from my end, it's it's okay. This was what I wanted to go through. Um, again, pretty interesting security stories. If you're into this. Um, it's not actually a technique that you can deploy. The first one had some advice, but the security around this uh, this type of things, this type of stories, they're pretty interesting, and we will continue to, to look at this. Yes, we will. All right. Well, that's Thank been you. another episode. Thank you to everybody listening, watching. Uh, we appreciate you, and uh, yeah, we're back. So um, vacations are over. We had a lot of fun. I know you know you may not have, but... <laughs> Um, I, either way, it's all it's all there. We, we're back, and I'm super excited. So uh, we'll see you guys again in a, a new episode here pretty soon. Yeah. Till the next one, everybody. Thank you. Right. Bye. Yeah.